everyone, and welcome to Earth Intelligence. I'm Don Shelby. Our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Foley, the world-renowned environmental scientist and sustainability expert and the executive director of Project Drawdown. He's the author of more than 130 peer-reviewed scientific articles, which have appeared in, among others, Science, Nature, and the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, I could go on for the next hour with the national awards he's garnered, I know him as one of the best, if not the best, science communicator I've ever known. I believe he's the Carl Sagan of our time. John, welcome to Geoversive's Earth Intelligence. Well, thank you, Don. That's uh, very kind of you. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. Now, I'd like to introduce you to Joseph Robertson, founder of Geoversive, Citizens Climate Lobby International Director and Lead Strategist for the Resilience Intel Climate Smart Finance Initiative, and Myra Jackson, who helped develop the UN 17 Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. She's a recognized diplomat of the biosphere and remains a UN representative and focal point on climate change. She's an expert on harmony with nature and the rights of nature. So, John, here's the question. Project Drawdown, am I right in assuming that we can reach the goals that we need to reach, according to the beliefs of Drawdown, by using off-the-shelf methodology that nothing new needs to be invented? We don't have to wait for the invention of something, but we can reach a goal by doing what is already available to us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's really the kind of top line result of Drawdown's work is that we went around and assessed the potential solutions to climate change that already exist in the marketplace. They're already here. And we lined up about 80 or so of them. And we found by doing them all simultaneously and bringing them to scale in the next decades, we can actually keep the planet from warming beyond about one and a half or two degrees, kind of within the the Paris Accords agreements on climate change. And that's without inventing anything new. Now, of course, we will invent new stuff along the way, which would be great. We can drop in other technologies, other practices, other ways of doing this. As we get smarter and we get better at it, that would be wonderful. But we don't need to wait. Uh, we've got the tools here. And if we, even if we got nothing new, which is unlikely, we still can pull it off. But we, what we don't have isn't the tech isn't the worry. What we don't have is time to waste. Tech is important, but time is way more important in the battle against climate change. John, it's interesting to hear you say that, that we can get climate destabilization under control within the limits set by the Paris Agreement with the technologies we have, but we have no time left to waste. And it raises the question for me of whether that is a result of the fact that impacts are compounding. So global heating is one thing. The destabilization of climate patterns is another thing. Deepening drought, risk of fires. are. Is it that the compounding effects are making it harder and harder for us to to wait any longer. Well, it's really um, that's part of it, of course. Um, as the temperature, I mean, the planet's already about one degree warmer than it should be, and as those temperatures go up a little bit more and a little bit more, the damages are compounding. They're not just increasing linearly; they're increasing kind of exponentially, and so that's a real worry. And that's why the Paris Accords set kind of a limit on climate change, saying, "Gosh, we really don't want it to go over two degrees." it'd be even better if we can keep it below 1.5. So that's what we're kind of aiming for at Drawdown to see, is that even possible? We do think that it is possible, but just barely if we get mobilizing today. But what it requires is pretty dramatic. Uh, We would have to cut emissions in the first decade or so in the 2020s by about 50% to even have a chance at really doing this. 
And then we'd have to keep doing that. We'd have to keep reducing emissions again and again and again through the 2040s. And then through the 2030s and 40s, we also have to build up a little bit of carbon removal to take out some of the pollution we can't avoid or we've already put in the atmosphere. And those uh, carbon removal practices could be based on nature, like planting trees or farming differently, or they can be based on maybe future technologies that remove carbon through an industrial or a chemical process, though those are pretty long ways away being practical. So uh, yeah, it's a dramatic cut in emissions, but if we did it, uh, we could keep the planet from getting into those really dangerous territories of climate change that we just we just don't want to try. We do not want a planet that's two degrees warmer or three degrees warmer. We we don't want to go there. But the good news is we don't have to if we get moving now. Do you see the movement fast enough for agriculture to change its practices so that soil carbon can be retained, runoff can be eliminated? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a big player in this whole equation. Uh, folks are really, first of all, surprised when they look at what causes greenhouse gas emissions in the first place. Because uh, it turns out globally, when you average the whole planet together, about a quarter of climate change emissions come from electricity production, coal, natural gas, all that. Another quarter comes from the food system, from agriculture, land use, all that kind of stuff. So kind of amazingly, electricity and food are equal in importance when it comes to climate change globally. Uh, within the food area, though, what causes the most problem are three big things. Uh, first is deforestation, especially in Brazil, Indonesia, and other more tropical countries. That's a really big problem. Uh, second is methane uh, coming from mostly cattle, uh, but a little bit from rice fields. And then third is using too much bloody fertilizer. Um, a lot of that mixes with air and water, the nitrogen in the fertilizer or the manure, and forms another little greenhouse gas called nitrous oxide that we don't pay enough attention to. So those three things, deforestation and um, methane from animals and too much fertilizer are the big culprits. And then a bunch of other things too. I think that's gradually beginning to be noticed that we've got to reduce the emissions from agriculture, and we've got to do that now. But we've got to lead with deforestation, we get to rethink our livestock, and we get to rethink fertilizers. The other part of the equation, though, is agricultural lands, because they're just so bloody big. About 35% of all the land on Earth is in one form of agriculture or the other. We could turn those also into not just places that don't emit greenhouse gases, they could become carbon sponges. If we really reform agriculture and start building back the soil carbon, the soil organic matter that used to be in those soils, or if we put back more trees and other things interspersed with these landscapes, we could, we could turn agriculture from being a big polluter to kind of a sponge of pollution, at least in principle. And uh, that is getting some attention now uh, of the big ag commodity groups, of the big producers, the big corporations, but also farmers and environmentalists around the world start to see some common ground here. And I think that's pretty exciting, but we got a long way to go. And, and we also have to recognize, as you point out, Don, too, that um, you know, these lands aren't just for climate change. They're also trying to feed you know, seven to eight billion people today and not doing it very well sometimes, as well as a growing um, need for agriculture in the future as we get more population, but also as we get richer and we try to eat more things like meat and dairy that just take up more resources. So this is a big challenge, uh, reducing pollution, turning them to carbon sinks, and still feeding the world and providing real food security is going to be a real challenge. But I think we can do it. 
that I've been hearing from scientists that I've been in conversation with, that really we know less about soil than we do about the ocean and space. And if you take that into your big head, you, you can really understand there's a whole lot more we can learn about how nature um, keeps wonderful carbon in the ground where it belongs and how, if we're cooperating with nature itself and keeping soils fertile, that we indeed have those carbon sinks. But of course, water too is a carbon sink that we've lost so much of its own natural capacity to draw down. Mm-hmm. My big question is, because I I tell you, I love the work of drawdown. It's excellent guidance there that every person can understand and follow. But what I find missing is the area of halophytes, those salt-loving plants that grow without pesticides and soil, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. can also draw down ambient CO2 faster than a forest in some places. And so I feel it's just an unexplored, unexamined area that we can do more in. Can you say a little bit about halophytes? Well, that's really interesting. Um, well, first of all, I mean, it's it some very good insights here. Um, I'd like to just react to you a little bit. But there are things we do know. We do know how much soil uh, carbon has been lost over the last 10,000 years since we invented agriculture. And so there are kind of upper limits of how much we can put in there. And, and we, we should be, we know how to bound that. We have a pretty good guess of how much carbon can be put away in soils. But as you point out, there are other things that have yet to be really fully explored. Um, like you mentioned, halophytes. Um, I'm also interested in what goes on in the oceans. Uh, people are interested in like farming, like what are called, you know, macrophytes or basically kelp. Can we kind of plant kelp forest and grow huge forests of kelp and then bury them in the deep ocean where it locks away that carbon for thousands, if not millions of years? There are all sorts of interesting ideas. Um, Drawdown, I guess we should say, is just the first iteration of the climate solutions menu. It's like what we know is here today. Uh, the good news is that it's by nature a conservative list. There's already things we want to add that um, we can keep adding to that list of 100 solutions to add it be 200 and then 300. That can only be good news. Um, we're just adding more tools to the toolbox. We're not taking anybody's away. And so I love that. Um, you know, what nature can do uh, to help would be great. But I do want to caution, though, um, when we use nature to absorb greenhouse gases, whether it's in trees or in soils or in you know other kinds of plants or whatever, we have to be taking care of that nature. That nature has to be around in the future. And so when we talk about planting trees, some corporate leaders and others are really bullish on planting trees or using farms. We're going to have to steward those trees and those farms for the next few hundred years. I hope people know what they're signing up for. This isn't a one and done deal. We got to make sure those trees don't burn down. They're not cut down or that those soils that are rich in carbon over the next few years because we farm better aren't plowed up again later by some new farmer who took over the land. So we got to be in it for the long haul. And when we lock up carbon in nature in plants or soil, we got to keep it there. And that's going to be a lot of work as well. Doable. Very exciting, but we just have to be careful. If what we're looking for is to take a quarter or a third of all of the CO2s above background level that are going into the atmosphere and causing the warming, if we just return the soils to their natural capacity to draw down, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then we have removed a third and then you are at or near the goals that you need to reach to begin 
approaching the climate goals of Paris. I'm a scientist, so I'm going to be very skeptical about any claims. And there are some groups that have made pretty wild claims about how much soils could solve the climate crisis. Uh, Alan Savory, the Rodale Institute, people I adore and respect, but they're making some very bold claims and and, um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And we just don't see it. Um, the best the scientific community has done so far has been putting together you know, hundreds of thousands of soil measurements of how much we've lost since like the last ice age or since we invented agriculture. And uh, if we could put all of that back while still feeding the world, it'd be maybe at most 100 to 200 gigatons of CO2, uh, not the teraton, you know, trillion tons of CO2 some are claiming that just that just defies the laws of physics. So I think we have to be a little bit careful about how big these things can be. And I do think that, I mean, I don't have a financial stake in this stuff, but I do think we have to be careful about the permanence because um, like in America, 40% of the farmland in this country is leased, not owned, leased. And so uh, will farmers keep farming this way to keep building up soil carbon or would somebody else come along in a couple of years and plow it all up? So I think there are some legit questions about how long it lasts in terms of the you know farmer practices, but the stability of like organic matter and humus molecules and stuff like that, we have a pretty good hunch about how long that lasts. And there's good evidence that lasts for centuries. So I, I think you're right. And if we keep it there and lock it up, nature is going to leave it there. It's a question of what we do, but also uh, let's be careful of not betting the planet on something that um, may not be the silver bullet we want it to be, but it's it sure as hell some silver buckshot. One of the things that I think about in terms of what can happen in shifting our land use patterns, shifting the carbon impacts of farming, are how can we enable small actors all over the world, people who are sort of off the grid or not part of the mainstream marketplace, to become part of a scaled up climate smart farming sector? Do you see the opportunity in doing that? And do you see it as useful or important to make sure that small farmers, marginal low-income farming communities can actually capture and harness earth systems data related to their practices, maybe through distributed autonomous sensors that are financed, not by them because they can't do it? Do you see that kind of thing as potentially a transformation in how we think about the food system? Yeah, that'd be really exciting because, uh, you know, the mantra in a lot of ag in the, this country, anyways, you know, get big or get out. And that sucks. <laughs> you know, I'd love to see ways of uh, the benefits of this new carbon market. For example, companies are going to pay farmers uh, for putting away soil carbon as kind of an offset or carbon removal mechanism. There's going to be money involved. And it would be really great, um, just philosophically for me, if smallholders and small farmers around the world, not just the U.S., or had access to that and had access to the technologies that could monitor what's happening in their farms and that kind of thing. It's just not just the big mega farms who already get a lot of advantages in the marketplace. It'd be great to help the small folks too. Uh, so yeah, I think that's a that's something to think about as we, um, I think the best place to start is probably the corporations who are already investing in these carbon markets and looking at paying farmers to farm carbon is asking the really tough question, like, hey, how much of that portfolio is going to the big boys who already get a lot of subsidies and support versus small farmers? And how much is domestic versus international? How much is in um, capacity building, like helping small farmers actually have access to tech markets, knowledge and know-how? And are you listening to them? Because maybe they've got ideas you aren't even thinking about. 
Uh, I'm especially interested in like in tropical countries, there's a lot of practices of agroforestry. I look at the landscapes in the Midwest and kind of bemoan the lack of trees. You know, we used to have, you know, hedgerows and things like that. And, you know, mixing kind of agroforestry practices, putting trees onto the landscape of pastures and croplands is something we've done for thousands of years, but we've kind of forgotten that in big ag. Maybe we need to remember that again. So I love your idea, I, uh, but I think we need to kind of put pressure on these markets where people pay for carbon so that the money is kind of given not just to a few, but to a more distributed, uh, maybe more equitable range of farmers uh, around the world. I think that'd be a lovely thing to think about. The fact that there are these uh, practices, some of which are traditional practices that could help to transition the entire farming sector. So bigger actors, but also smallholders. It seems like the, you say put pressure on the markets, but it seems like if if we can show with data that the practices in question are building resilience, which means they're also building value across the landscape, then there may be an investable opportunity there, but new business models have to emerge. Do you see the business model innovation space as one of the sort of pieces of the knowledge puzzle for for project drawdown or for the overall quest to get emissions under control. Oh, absolutely. And if we if we kind of telescope out to how investors look at climate solutions generally, not just in agriculture, they get a little depressed sometimes because the gap between what investors get flocking to and what the atmosphere actually needs is a palpable gap. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty big distance between those two places. Because look, if, if you're um, you're a manager of a big private equity fund or a sovereign wealth fund or you know somebody's pension fund, or whatever, um, you're under the gun to return you know tens of millions of dollars a year in your portfolio or whatever. You want to keep it simple. You want to de-risk it. You want to just like I want to put my money into a couple of things I really get and diversify to that extent. But you're not going to take chances. You don't want to deal with lots of small actors you don't know. And so you kind of do what's safe. And and I get that. That's human nature. But we need um, climate investments to go into things like agriculture. Very little of it is. Um, we need to go into things like materials, like concrete and steel. Uh, we need to get into more money into energy efficiency, which is just as important as wind turbines and solar and geothermal, but not enough private capital is going there. So I think we have to look a lot at how investors think and how to you know, make the whole palette of uh, climate solutions attractive to different kinds of private capital, whether it's venture or private equity, sovereign, whatever. Um, but also, you know, of course, the role of our public dollars, uh, the role of governments and um, things like, you know, what the Biden administration may do uh, in this space could be huge. And so I think if we put the pieces together, what the private investors can do, what businesses can do and what governments can do, as well as civil society as a whole, uh, we could do a heck of a lot, but we got to make sure we're we're all playing um, we're all playing chess together, uh, using all the pieces and knowing how to do all the moves. But right now, I don't think we're playing the same board sometimes. But do you see that changing, John? Because I think I do. Joe and I were in Oslo at the Solutions to Climate Change Summit at the Nobel Institute, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we were in the room with about thirty-seven and a half trillion dollars worth of capital there at disposal. It was IMF and the World Bank, and it was uh, big corporations, big investment houses. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about risk management. And they were saying that it's, it seems like that they were headed in a direction of not making investments because they are risk adverse, because they're protecting the money of their 
investors, of their clients. And so they are looking at not just those risky situations that you're talking about with the small, I don't know who they are farmers, Mm -hmm. but also the giant corporations who are facing risk already saying these are bad investments. And that will eventually lead to the chickens coming home to roost. And that means bad investment. Do you, do you see the financial sector waking up to that reality? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, In the kind of, you know, divesting out of stuff um, side of the table. Absolutely. I mean, whether it's BlackRock or, you know, the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which is one of the largest in the world, uh, or, you know, or the, you know, the big multilaterals you're talking about, IMF, World Bank, and so on. Of course, yeah, absolutely. Um, What I'm worried about is where the money is going, not where, you know, we're pulling it out of the bad stuff. um, And we can't do that quickly enough. Um, And then putting it into good stuff. Uh, and I, I lived in San Francisco for about six years before this and uh, being very close to Silicon Valley. And I was a little depressed how a lot of the investors, uh, especially the venture and tech investor types, um, really kind of lobbed onto um, just high tech glossy solutions, not the really low tech stuff that actually really works today. And that's just kind of depressing because a lot of the solutions we need to climate change do need capital. Um, they do need money. They need people. And uh, we're not putting it all in there. I think if you, you know, like right now, I think the, um, whether it's philanthropy or climate investors, I, I would be willing to bet about 80% of the money is going to about 20% of the solutions. Um, and it worries me because there are a lot of solutions that do need time, money, and people power to get them going. And are we making those investments according to the laws of the atmosphere? Or to just the laws of human nature of like following fads and trends and getting rich quick. Overall, I'm heartened that money is going into climate solutions and out of things like oil and gas. That's great. But where it's going, I think could be better. Um, And let's see if we can make that a little bit better. But it's heading in the right direction, just maybe quibbling a little bit about where we're putting it on the chessboard. I was just looking at $26 of assets under management, driving startups in plant-based food area. And these conversations are rampant in Clubhouse amongst, you know, the the bubble Mm -hmm. that you're talking about. (laughs) Greatly, and I'll tell you why. I think what's missing here from my standpoint, listening to the biosphere, right, is that we don't have an idea of investing to restore the earth itself. We're still looking at products that in essence are derivatives of the earth. There's no value associated with the source. Mm -hmm. And GDP will never get us there. How we manage assets will never get us there. What I would hope for in the ensuing years is that science and traditional knowledge will point us toward what pristine natural environments consist of so that we restore towards that because that's the real bank of real wealth that will ensure generations of all species still have a spheric home here, particularly for us large mammals. There was a time we didn't have a biosphere and the way we're going we could slip back. <laughs> but I am interested in what this living planetary being can offer in terms of its new spheric potentials. And I would love to see humanity evolving to live in a growing planetary body, expressing all new myriad forms. I think it has a great potential. And 
it's definitely designed to feed us abundantly if we learn how to share and distribute and cooperate with nature. There are people who are, and these are baby steps uh, towards a much grander vision you articulated about the idea of putting, uh, you know, saying, wow, uh, nature does have value. A very crude measure of that might be the monetary value of nature. Uh, and there are people trying to do that. Economists are talking about what are called ecosystem goods and services or nature's capital, as well as our financial, human and physical capital we have. Um, that's a good step in that direction. And one of the world's leaders on that is uh, Steve Pulaski at the University of Minnesota, who's one of the best economists in the world when it comes to, hey, nature's worth something too. So that's a lot of interest there. Um, and, um, you know, and the old joke of like, well, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. I'm like, <laughs> I'm actually more interested in the other way around. Trees don't grow on money either. And <laughs> you know, it turns out, and what's actually a lot more enduring is probably the trees. And a country that is wealthier, in my estimation, a true capitalist, not a profiteer, would be building wealth that includes like a country that is having more forest and cleaner water and richer fisheries and more rich, diverse wildlife and landscapes and things that we don't have to exploit. Uh, this isn't capitalism we're having right here. We're liquidating a planet and we've got profiteers. Real capital would be building up if you wanted to be truly a wealthy species. And we'd see the wealth of nature as well as our own kind of material wealth as maybe second to that. Totally agree. But we're a long way from that kind of mental model. But as soon, the more we look at how the in, inextricable links between the environment and the economy, uh, we have to realize the economy comes second. Um, you know, Gaylord Nelson, uh, who founded Earth Day, former senator and governor of Wisconsin, said it best, maybe he said, the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. And he was right. And he said that back in 1970, I think. John Foley has been our guest, Dr. John Foley from Project Drawdown. And thank you very much, John, for being with us. Uh, would you make a promise to us to return because there is so much more to talk about and you're so eloquent on all of these subjects? I would love to have you back at some point. Would you agree to that? Oh, of course, John. You're one of my favorite people out here. <laughs> so, of course, absolutely. Just ask and I'll be there. That's John Foley. And ladies and gentlemen, you can follow him on Twitter at Global Eco Guy, at Global Eco Guy. And you can find wonderful information. So just immediately go to the bird on your phone and uh, find Global Eco Guy and click on that. And if you're listening right now and you find this podcast to be of particular interest, push it out on your own social media platforms as well. Thank you very much, Joe and Myra, for being here. Thank you to Dr. John Foley. And thank you, everyone, for being with us. 